Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the real crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Happy almost Thanksgiving, Allison. Happy almost Thanksgiving. In today's episode, we're going to load your plate with some delicious helpings of portfolio allocation in a tortured metaphor. <laughs> we'll also talk about the remarkable antics of activist investor Evelyn Davis. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, kind of some sad news. The world oh. recently lost what Jenna McGregor at the Washington Post calls a theatrical but persistent thorn in the side of corporate executives, by which I mean Evelyn Nesbitt. She was a colorful character and indefatigable shareholder activist prior to her passing on November 4. So, let's take a look back on her life, shall we? Let's do it. Were you familiar with her before I have, all I the. Not, I've never heard the name before. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, well, here so, we go. I'm in for a treat, I think. Here we go. Evelyn Yvonne de Young, I assume, uh, was born in 1929 in Amsterdam. She was the daughter of a neurologist father and a psychologist mother. She grew up, as she put it, on the wrong side of the Atlantic Ocean, but the very right side of the tracks. So, yeah, they were wealthy. However, in 1942, while her father was lecturing in the United States, the Nazis arrested the family because they were half Jewish and sent Evelyn, her mother, and her brother to a series of concentration mm. camps, eventually in Czechoslovakia, which she was there for quite a while. After the war, she ended up in the U.S. and started investing with the money she got from a divorce settlement and her father's will. She did pretty well. And she started asking tough questions at shareholders' meetings. In 1965, she started publishing her annual newsletter called Highlights and Lowlights of Annual Meetings with her views on business, politics, travel, and shareholder activism. As she proclaimed, institutional investors get treated like royalty, individual investors like peasants. She was a real fool. She was the original fool. Well, let me tell you about some of the things she did and see if you aspire to this. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, according to the Washington Post, Evelyn would attend roughly 40 shareholder meetings a year, crusading for many goals, including democratizing corporate governance. Uh, she would love to lambast errant CEOs, and she admits to attracting attention to Evelyn Davis. She told People magazine in 1996. Advancing corporate democracy and educating her readers were not her sole mission or even her primary objective. Quote, the main thing she said is to keep my name out in front. <laughs> so she loved to cause a scene at shareholders' meetings, including stripping down to a bathing suit, wow. demanding the CEO himself come move the mic closer to her chair. <laughs> and sure enough, the CEO got down on his hands and knees, unplugged the microphone, and moved it to where she wanted Apparently, this kept coming up in articles. She wore hot pants to a shareholders <laughs> meeting, which I don't even really know quite what hot pants what are. Hot pants. But they are controversial. <laughs> uh, she wore a Batman mask to ABC's shareholders meeting after they premiered the campy Batman show back in the 60s. 70s. Was she supporting it or protesting it? I have it? no idea. I, I hope supporting it. Uh, she wore an aluminum dress to U.S. Steel's meeting. What? She told Lee Iacocca he was fat. She also told someone else, you're no threat to me, you're too fat. She informed the chairman of Citigroup that she had him buy the things that people sometimes say they have men buy. Mm, interesting. Uh, so she did all of this in front of 
shareholders meetings, <laughs> rooms of people, rooms of, let's be honest, men in suits, stuffy men in suits who would jeer, sometimes cheer. Um, some of the issues she, shot, um, she fought for were high CEO compensation, increased transparency, ending the system of staggered terms for directors. I didn't. I need to look into why that. That's a hot topic. Anyway, in 1996, People Call Magazine called her the nation's most obstreperous corporate gadfly. In 2002, Vanity Fair called her the most famous and least loved shareholder activist in the country. And in 1993, Washingtonian Magazine named her one of the 25 most annoying Washingtonians. <laughs> let's let's be honest. That's saying something. <laughs> that is saying something. How do you choose? Yeah. When Peter Carlson of The Post wrote a profile on her in 2003, she lived in the Watergate Hotel for many, many years, so a lot of the a lot of the coverage was DC-based. Um, when Peter Carlson of The Post wrote a profile on her in 2003, she, call, um, she called him up and suggested the headline herself, which was, quote, I was gifted with both extraordinary beauty and extraordinary brains, and I've used them both to my utmost advantage. <laughs> Even though she passed away this week, she already had her gravestone, although it was more like a monument, installed in 1981 in wow. Rock Creek Park. That is estate planning right yes, there. Yes, it lists her resume, her resume, her many marriages and divorces. I think there were four. Wow. Um, and the phrase, power is greater than love, and I did not get where I am by standing in line nor being shy, which is very true. Um, one of her ex-husbands is also buried there, but it only lists his accomplishment as being her ex-husband. <laughs> uh, so Nell Minow, um, who listeners of Motley Fool Money will recognize, she's also a big shareholder activist, was quoted in the 2002 Vanity um, Fair piece, and it sums it up nicely. She was quoted as saying, the Evelyn Davises of the future are on the Yahoo message board. So remember, this is 2002. Minnow says, it used to be that you had to be financially independent and willing to be very controversial in order to confront corporate management. Now you can sit in your bedroom at your computer and be a shareholder activist. This is going to create a million new Evelyns. So shareholder activism has become easier because of the internet, but let's be honest, I wouldn't even expect bro to wear hot pants to a shareholder's meeting. <laughs> is that a challenge? Whatever they are. <laughs> and that bro is what's up. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days, and it's causing a lot of anxiety with people. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. That gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you're qualified for their all-new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-day purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Right now, Allison, as we speak, millions of Americans are planning their Thanksgiving meals, trying to decide how much to buy of this, how much to buy of that, making sure that they have enough of the things that should make up the core of any traditional meal, but also a little bit what should be added as a compliment to make sure that everyone goes home happy, mm. healthy, and satisfied. Yes. You know, it's an awful lot like something else. Do you know what that else is? I do, because I forced you to do this topic this week. <laughs> ah, you're right. It's portfolio allocation, of course. 
So here at Answers HQ, we often get lots of questions about portfolio allocation. If you listen to our mailbag episode, you know this is true. So a lot of questions about how much should I have in stocks and bonds, how much in large caps versus small caps, international versus U.S., those types of questions. So we thought we'd decide we'd take this pre-Thanksgiving episode and provide some broad asset allocation guidance by using a very, very strained and elongated and barely believable analogy that is comparing asset allocation to setting the table at Thanksgiving. I don't think this is going to be that much of a stretch, but then again, I just have to sit back and listen. <laughs> so, so uh, we're going to use as the bench- benchmark guidance for the overall asset allocation a report from Morningstar named their 2018 Target Date Landscape Report. So basically, they looked at all of the target date funds out there and provided a general like average allocation. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, a target date fund is basically a reasonably allocated fund based on when someone is going to retire. Most, in fact, these days, just about all major mutual fund companies offer them. Um, so we're going to use this as sort of like the foundation, like sort of like a wisdom of the crowd asset allocation, and then I'll give a few thoughts uh, of my own because generally speaking, the average target date fund is pretty conservative. Most people who are Motley Fool members or listeners tend to be a little bit more aggressive. So I'll have a few things to say about that. Anyways, uh, and then for each major asset category, I'll add some basic nutritional facts, <laughs> which is basically some historical return information. So, pull up a chair, everyone, and prepare yourself for a feast of investing information. (laughs) Are you ready? I'm so excited. (laughs) At Allison's Restaurant. (laughs) Rick has been trying to get Allison's Restaurant into the show for about as long as we've been on the show. About three and a half years. Are you really going to play the music? I think I already have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's start with... The main course, the star of every Thanksgiving feast, the turkey. It's the mainstay of the meal, the biggest item on the table, partially because it's one of the largest birds in America. You actually may have heard that Ben Franklin thought that the turkey and not the bald eagle should be our national Mm. bird. Turns out that it's not necessarily true, but he did write in a letter that the eagle has a bad moral character and that the turkey, in comparison... Is a quote a much more respectable bird? Well, I guess an eagle is a is an eagle a scavenger? Or they're yes, pred- that yeah, was part of that yeah. was part of his point. He wrote that quote the turkey is a much more respectable bird, and withal a true original native of America. Mm. He is besides, though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage, <laughs> and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British Guards, who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. End quote. <laughs> so, think of that when you're having your turkey. You're eating the bird of courage, according to Ben Franklin. <laughs> so, what's the turkey of your portfolio? Of course, it's U.S. large-cap stocks, most commonly represented by the Dow or the S&P 500. These are the big-name, blue-chip, generally more established companies. So, let's look at some of the nutritional facts, that is, the historical return. So, since 1926, U.S. large-cap stocks have averaged 10.2% a year. Best year, up 54%. Worst year, down 43%. On average, U.S. large-cap stocks have earned money in three out of every four years. So, according to the Morningstar report on target date funds, on average, a fund has around 40% of its stock allocation to U.S. large-cap. So, I'm just looking at the stock allocation there, not stock and bonds. So, just of the stocks, mm. they have 40% 
to U.S. large caps. I think that's a fine, reasonable start, although in the model portfolios I've created for my early retirement service, it's actually a little lower because I allocate more to mid and small caps, which we'll get into later. Um, but generally, that's a, that's a pretty good place to be with your U.S. large caps. If you're more aggressive, you go smaller. Um, if you are maybe uh, closer to retirement or in retirement, those portfolios tend to have more large caps because historically large caps are less volatile. Also, they're more likely to be paying dividends. I have thought that it'll be interesting to know going forward how much less volatile large caps will be compared to mid and small caps and even international. Because when you look at the top 10 companies in the S&P 500 now, you're looking at Apple, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Alphabet, formerly of Google. So it does seem to me that some of the bigger companies have become tech, tech, tech. Yes, a lot more volatile. So we'll see going forward what that's like. But generally speaking, if you look at the other U.S. large caps, things like Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, a lot of the banks, those do tend to be a little bit more stable. So when you're talking about allocation large cap stocks, then you are talking agnostic of what industry they're in. Right. So Exactly. Just okay. Exactly. So now let's move on to the next item on our Thanksgiving slash investment menu. Potatoes. Likely of the mass variety. <laughs> what are the potatoes of your portfolio? I say US small caps. And while the phrase small potatoes usually denotes something of little consequence, the historical returns of small cap stocks are, well, spudtacular. <laughs> anyway, since 1926, U.S. small cap stocks have returned 12.1% a year, so about 2% more a year than large caps. Best year, 143%. Wow. Worst year, down 58%. Now, this, this Morningstar target date report didn't break out small caps specifically. In, instead, they grouped small caps and mid caps together, what, what many people called SMID. SMID. And there you go. Right. But by looking at the allocations of some of the biggest target date funds, I could see that roughly speaking, for most of these funds, they have about a, when you look at the SMID category, a quarter of it is actually small. Mm. So again, looking at the broad category of target date funds and what some of the biggest firms think how you should invest, they have about 18 to 19% in SMIDs, which means about 5% in small caps. And that's just 5% of your stock allocation. And I think that's way, way too small. Hmm. Um, I think, generally speaking, especially if you are a moderate to more aggressive investor, it's perfectly fine to have at least 20% of your stock allocation in small caps, and maybe as much as your large cap allocation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and now, when I talk potatoes in your portfolio, I'm talking about the standard white variety. But I know there are some people who like the sweet potato mush with the marshmallows on top not, for Thanksgiving. Not this girl, but okay. all right, let's talk about it. So, when it comes to your portfolio, <clears throat> the sweet potato mush could be microcaps. So, those are the oh. smallest of the small. We're talking companies that are worth $250 million, maybe up to $500 million. Um, when you look at the long span of history, they actually have performed the best of any asset class, like 14% a year. Hmm. The problem is they're crazy, crazy volatile. And also, because they're so small, they can often be illiquid, which hmm. makes them difficult to buy. In fact, if you look at some of the microcap index funds, and there are only a few, they have trouble matching the index because it's difficult to buy and sell some of the stocks that are actually in the index. In my model portfolios in early retirement, only those who are more than 10 years from retirement have an explicit allocation to microcaps. 
for those who are closer to retirement, I don't have that specific allocation because they're so volatile. So you don't need them, just like you don't need the sweet potato, whatever, or as some people call it, yams. I'm not gonna miss. I'm not gonna miss. You're yams not. On you're my not plate. gonna miss the microcaps. No. Okay. All right. So I got turkey. I got some white mashed potatoes. Right. What's next? So I mentioned the mid caps. Okay. So I'm going to actually give a specific allocation to mid caps, and I'm going to say it's the stuffing. I do love stuffing. Or the dressing, depending on where you live. Generally speaking, folks in the north, it's, it's stuffing. Folks in the south, it's dressing. And I chose mid-caps to be the stuffing because just like stuffing is something that people usually forget about during the non-holiday time of the year, <laughs> people don't usually think of mid-caps. It's like the ignored asset category, especially when you're looking at size of companies. But when and you, stuffing's so good. And stuffing is really it's good. so good. So if you look at the long-term history, like since 1926, mid-caps perform like just about right in the middle between large and small. But there are long periods when mid-caps outperform both. For example, since 1993, mm-hmm. mid-caps have outperformed large caps and small caps. So it's not something to ignore in your portfolio. I think you could, you could start, again, the, the target date report has an allocation of about 15% of your stock allocation. I think you could easily bump that up to 20 25% as how much you should own in mid-caps. All right, so far we've covered a lot of bland looking food, a lot of white, a lot of brown. Mm-hmm. Let's add some color. And moving on to that jiggly staple of Thanksgiving tables cranberry sauce. All right, now are you of the family that needs to have that cranberry sauce come out of a can and keep those ridges evident? Or are you like, no, it needs to actually look like cranberries? Or do you guys actually buy fresh cranberries? Okay, so it depends on whether I'm in charge of providing it for the meal. Uh, I'm usually in charge of, of our family Thanksgiving and bringing mm-hmm. drinks, which gives you an idea of how much faith my family has, has in me in cooking anything. Mm-hmm. If I were in charge of the cranberries, it would come out of the can, which, by the way, according to Smithsonian Magazine, is how something like 74% of people do it. Mm-hmm. Only 26% of people actually get the cranberries and make the sauce. Mm-hmm. So, in our portfolio that we are setting before us, mm-hmm. I'm putting cranberries as style investing. So up to now, we've been talking about investing according to size, Mm -hmm. but there are other factors. And one of them is style, basically growth versus value. So every portfolio should have some growth and value, just like every Thanksgiving table should have some cranberry. But depending on how you want to lean, a little bit of growth toward growth, a little turn of value is kind of really up to you. The long-term returns on whether growth beats value or vice versa is somewhat inconclusive. Plenty of academic evidence shows that value outperforms, but there are many periods where growth outperforms for a long period, including our recent period. Like over the last several years, growth has just significantly outperformed value. So I'm not going to go one way or the other. People like Jack Bogle say, you know, over the long term, it doesn't matter. Mm. But you have a style, just like you have a cranberry preference. Some people love tech stocks. They love finding like the new up-and-coming companies, sort of like in, in Motley Fool lingo, like the rule breakers, then you're going to be leaning towards growth. If you're more of a Warren Buffett-type investor, you like getting a good deal, or if you're like, you want your portfolio to have a better emphasis on things like dividends, you're probably going to lean more towards value. But in the end, over the long term, it probably doesn't matter. Mm. All right. So far, we have talked about mostly classic American foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. But if you look at your table, you might see 
a little bit of influence from other countries. And at my family's table, the most prominent, especially for the vegetarians, is macaroni and cheese. Mm. It actually has a Greek origin, both the product as well as the name. What? What? Macaroni and cheese is Greek? Well, the macaroni part. Okay. The macaroni comes, start with Greek, then moved to Italy. Oh. And then in the 1700s, in England, the term macaroni started being applied to people who were basically dandies. Like they had tried to bring these sort of oh. European influences to England and they'd kind of uh, overdress a little bit. Maybe um, stick a feather in there. Yeah, hat. they stick a feather. And that's exactly, I was just getting to that, right? So Yankee Doodle originally was written by a British surgeon making fun of Americans who put a feather in their cap and then thought that made them look more sophisticated. Oh. Um, but then the Americans are like, what? we love why? it. We love pasta. We yeah, love it. We're going to embrace it. Yeah, why not? Now, now Yankee Doodle's like the, it's the uh, state song of Connecticut. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, as for macaroni and cheese, that started in England, now very popular in America. So, when it comes to your portfolio, this, of course, is your international <laughs> allocation. I was wondering how you're going to get there. Yeah, wow. Right. Yes. So, we don't have as good stats on international stocks. So, for this, I'm just going to go back to 1970. Since then, international stocks have performed, they've provided an average 8.9% a year. Okay. And we had mentioned a couple episodes ago about how many people like Jack Bogle of Vanguard think international investing is not necessary. Um, there's certainly no evidence that international stocks outperform U.S. stocks over the long term. Plus, many uh, U.S. companies have plenty of business overseas. And I generally agree. That said, I do have significant allocation in my own portfolio, as well as in the RYR model portfolios. Um, I should finish, by the way, the nutritional facts here. That's the average annual turn, 8.9%. Best year was 70%. Oh. So that's pretty good. Worst year, a loss of 43%. Yeah. What do these sort of overall target asset, al target fund date allocations look at? What are those looking at in terms of international stocks? Basically, around 28% for non-U.S. developed, so that's Canada, England, Western Europe, generally speaking, and then 6 to 7% emerging markets. So in my little allocation here, the macaroni and cheese is the developed. Emerging markets, those are the lentils on your on your table. Oh man, I love lentils. I like some curried lentils. some curried lentils that your vegan sister-in-law brought. Is right. that what it is? Okay. Something like that. So yeah. basically they are looking at allocating more than a third of your stock portfolio to international stocks. Most Americans are not there. And even I have in my allocation it's close to like 30%. Hmm. Um, the tricky thing about emerging markets is the data does for emerging markets uh, depending on what you look at, if you, you, there's some data sources that say they outperform all other types of stocks, and other data that say they underperform all other types of stocks, because, partially because the data on some of these emerging markets is not so good, and there's some debate on what makes an emerging market. Mm. For example, like South Korea. Is that an emerging market or not? Feels pretty emerged. Right. But the thing is, if you're going to go international, you're going to get more volatility than U.S. stocks, and the more you tilt your portfolio towards emerging markets, it's going to get crazy. Um, so, keep that relatively small, especially if you're not a particularly risk-tolerant investor. Although, and I did this a few months ago, I did a survey of, of investment return assumptions across many of the major firms. 
The vast majority expect emerging markets to outperform U.S. stocks over the next decade. But it's going to be a lot of volatility along the way. And of course, who knows if that'll actually happen in the end. So you have a valid reason for maybe not loading up on lentils and not offending. (laughs) Just saying you don't need lentils to have a perfectly fine Thanksgiving meal. Just enough to be polite. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So far, we've talked about stocks. What about bonds? What about bonds? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the green bean casserole of your portfolio. (laughs) So, some people love them. Some might say they're even good for you. Oh. Others, however, can't stand them. I'm like that. I love green bean casserole. There's no way it's healthy. Well, the bean part might be. I don't know. Green beans are barely, barely (laughs) healthy for you. And then you're like, cream and mushroom soup, fried onions. Vegetable. Here's the veg. Onions a vegetable, right? Just like yeah. a French fry. Right. Anyways, so that's bonds for you. So that's, that's <laughs> they, they don't give you a heart attack. <laughs> Way to go. So let's look at the historical returns. Since 1926, uh, intermediate government bonds have returned 5.5 percent a year. Best year, 29 percent. Who knew you get 29 percent from bonds in a single year? Worst year. Negative 5%. Okay. There have only been a handful of years when bonds have lost value, and obviously that's one of the big benefits. Problem is, bonds are particularly unattractive right now because of, we're in a rising interest rate environment. When rates go up, bonds go down. In fact, this year, bonds are actually down. Mm. Never great. It's particularly bad this year because the S&P 500 is also down. Mm. And you buy bonds because you want something to be up in your portfolio and your stocks are down. In fact, since 1926, there have only been two years when both bonds and stocks lost money. The last time was 1969. Whoa. So we're actually in the middle of what could be a very unique year. Who knows? Maybe the stock market will recover before the end of the year. Bonds probably won't, because uh, the market expects that the, the Fed will raise interest rates again in December meeting. So I think we've pretty much locked in the loss for, for bonds this year. So what else can you do if you'd want to have some money out of the stock market? Well, then we come to the rolls of your Thanksgiving meal and that is cash. Ah. Now, you, bread. Bread. You're boring bread stuff, right? Everyone should have some and you can go with the basic boring rolls that you buy in bulk at the grocery store, which is like going to your local bank and just opening up a regular old savings account and you're not going to get very much. Or you can put in a little more effort, make your homemade cornbread, mm-hmm. make your homemade whatever, bacon-filled croissants or something like that. Basically, if you put in a little more effort, you can actually earn more than 2% on cash these days. And so I think it's worth doing that. Um, Looking at the historical returns, we're looking at T-bills, which are short-term treasuries, which is basically an equivalent of cash. Since 1926, T-bills have returned 3.4%. The best year, almost 15%. That was in 1981. Uh, The worst, of course, is zero. And that's the great thing about cash. It It doesn't lose value. So... The overall question then is, how much should you have in cash and bonds? And this really depends. Everything I've said up to now, when you look at across all target date funds, it surprisingly doesn't change based on the target retirement date. Hmm. The allocations according to, for these various types of stocks are pretty much the same whether they expect you're going to retire in five years or 50 years. Obviously, that's different when it comes to how much you're going to have in bonds and cash. Because the closer you are to retirement, you should be playing it safer. But these funds play it pretty darn safe. Mm. So for example, for a 2010 fund, so basically anyone who's already retired, overall they recommend that you have 62% of your portfolio in cash and bonds. 
that's playing it pretty safe. And then it goes down as you get, so as you get further out. So 2025 fund has about 40% in cash and bonds. 2040, only 17%. 2050, only 11.2% in cash and bonds. For me, in the RYR model portfolios, that basically you should have 40% in bonds if you're retired, 25%, I should say 40% out of the stock market mm. if you're retired, 25% out if you're within a decade of retirement. And if you're more than a decade from retirement, 5% is fine. And these days, I really think that, especially for money you need in the next five years, you need to keep it perfectly safe, cash is the way to go. Because the bond market is just going to continue to struggle uh, here over the next year or two. Over the long term, if you're just looking for some like overall diversification to your portfolio, a diversified, low-cost bond fund is perfectly fine. Rates going up is actually good for future returns for bonds over the long term. It just kind of hurts in the short term. Mm. At some point, bonds will return to their historical average of beating cash by 2%, but that's not going to happen for another couple of years. So for money you need to keep absolutely safe, stick to the rolls, stick to the cash. And so that's it. Now, there's, Wait, there are what? things I left out. Dessert. Obviously, things I left out. Right. So there's the dessert. There's the gravy. The thing I thought could be part of that are what we would call portfolio alternatives. Mm. Could be commodities. Could be uh, real estate. Could even be things like private equity and hedge funds. Um, these things are not necessary. Uh, as, as your portfolio, if you do everything that I've talked about before, you are more than 90% of the way You're there. You're fed. Right. You're really well fed. Right. Now, that said, I totally acknowledge that you cannot have a Thanksgiving meal without dessert. <laughs> so that's why I'm not going to try to stretch this analogy out even further by comparing them, but just saying that there are legitimate reasons to have things, particularly, I think, the alternative assets like commodities and real estate, like real estate investment trusts, otherwise known as REITs. A dedicated allocation in your portfolio, maybe five to ten percent at the most, in some cases. But generally speaking, it's not necessary. I think dessert's more like lottery tickets or something, isn't it? That doesn't sound like dessert. You just said. I'm trying to think like what's the investment equivalent of something that you just know you're going to like. I mean, who doesn't like dessert? There are some people who don't. But like for me, and I especially people like my kids, they're just like okay. I have to eat the stuff that my parents put on the plate so I can eventually get to the dessert. I don't know what the investment equivalent of that is. Maybe the investment equivalent is don't forget to keep some money um, on the side and do fun things for yourself. And That's I don't know. Good. That's Amazon gift obvious. cards. Amazon. There you go. That's a good one. <laughs> Something like and And when you're done eating and investing, don't forget to have fun. That's it. That's the main stuff. See, that wasn't such a tortured <laughs> metaphor. I thought that that was great. You did a great Thank job. You. Thank you very much. Um, so can you actually just go back and do a really quick recap? So Turkey. Yes, Turkey, U.S. large caps. Again, this sort of overall survey of mutual fund managers who do target retirement funds. I think it should be 40% of the stock allocation. I think that's fine, especially if you're more conservative. I'd bring it down so that I could contribute more to Small caps, the potatoes, mm -hmm. I think at least 20%. Or maybe smids. The, the yes, smids. Now we're moving into well, then, then the mid cap, mids. which is okay. the stuffing or dressing, another maybe 20, 25%. Mm -hmm. Then you get into the macaroni and cheese of your portfolio. That's the international stocks. 
So in macaroni and cheese was the the developed country, like 20% maybe. Uh, the lentils, the emerging markets, maybe 5 to 10%, something like that. Then we get to the exciting green bean casserole of bonds. bonds. Uh, and then the rolls were the cash. And for that, it's just generally speaking, as a baseline, if you're tired, 40%. In the casserole and rolls, bonds and cash. Okay. <laughs> uh, if we're we're going to get an email from someone who's like, I went and I bought a whole pallet of rolls at Costco. I don't know if this investment's going to pay off, but I did it. I've got five years worth of rolls in my basement. <laughs> uh, yes, within 10 years of yes. retirement, 25% out of the stock market. More than a decade, as little as 5% out of the stock market. And I'll just add the classic thing we say, I feel like probably every other episode, any money you definitely need in the next three to five years should be out of the stock market. And these days, given what's happening to bonds, it's probably better just to keep them in cash. See, there you have it. What a delicious and nutritious <laughs> Thanksgiving meal. Thank you. I'm thankful Good. for you. Oh, well, I'm thankful for you. I'm <laughs> thankful for you too, Rick. The guy behind the glass. Walk right in, it's around the back. Just a half a mile from the railroad track And you can get anything you want At Atlas's Restaurant That's the show! It's edited, thankfully, by Rick Angel. <laughs> <laughs> really, you guys do not know what ends up on the cutting room floor. Uh, our email is answers at fool.com. You can join our Facebook group. It's called Motley Fool Podcast, um, but you have to be invited in. So just knock and you'll be let in. Uh, also, follow us on Twitter. Or or don't. We're not really super active there at the moment, but we'll get better. Um, yeah. So, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And stay foolish.